Arms dealers make millions as Middle East nations spend major portions of their GNP for military hardware. Since the first mushroom cloud of World War II, the world has seen an explosion in the technology of death. What happens to a people when they greet each other with, May the Force be with you? Here's Dave Wurtzen, our study leader, to help us learn how to counter this perversive spirit of power. Remember back in World War II, uh, J. Vernon McGee, I remember him predicting that Hitler was definitely the Antichrist. And unlike uh, J. Vernon McGee's usual practice after the war, he had to admit when Hitler committed suicide and was killed as the Allies conquered that evidently he wasn't the Antichrist. But you know, Dr. McGee had an insight Hitler was not the literal 666 that's coming, but he was one that personified and and really embodied the spirit of Antichrist. In our last two sessions together, we began by looking at Daniel chapter 11. If you turn back there, we see that the first spirit of Antichrist was the spirit of atheistic pride. As this Antichrist that ultimately is going to come worshipped only himself, and, and and he no longer had any regard for traditional religion, He had no regard for the one that was desired by women, the Messiah who was coming. But in Daniel chapter 11, verse 37, it says that he will exalt himself above them all. And so what we have is this atheistic spirit. And what we've done is kind of turn the tables on secularism and atheism and learned that it's in Jesus and a commitment to God that we really find the love in life. We find the standard in life, moral standards. It's in our commitment to the word of God and the Messiah that we find a hope that will last forever, even as we grow older and as we all have to handle the the threat of death, that in the Messiah, Jesus, we have an incredible hope that nothing will be able to snuff out ever. And finally, we learned about the great, wondrous, childlike joy that as we grow older in the Lord Jesus, that we don't have to lose that wonder of being childlike in our commitment to the Lord. And the Lord is going to have wonders that are much better than anything we can ever experience on planet Earth. So atheistic pride is not going to be the answer to our existence. Humble commitment to the Lord and to the Savior is going to be the answer. And we've talked about the fact that as we go out into the world, that there's going to be a counter spirit. There's going to be those that honor Christ. There are going to be those that really praise him and love him. There's also going to be those that are commitment to secular values and materialistic values. The second characteristic that I want you to think of, number one, is the spirit of Antichrist is atheistic pride. The second one is revealed in Daniel chapter 11, right away the very next verse. Look what it says in verse 38. It says, instead of them, Daniel eleven thirty eight, he will honor a God of fortresses, a God unknown to his fathers. He will honor with gold and silver and with precious stones and costly gifts. Look at that phrase, instead of them, he will honor a God of fortresses. In other words, the text literally says that Antichrist's God is going to be power. It's going to be might. With the Star Wars trilogy coming out again, I can highlight the contrast that I want you to understand. Remember when Star Wars came out, when Jonathan and Joel were just little boys? All of a sudden, everybody was going around, and when they said goodbye to you, they would say, May the... Let me hear it. May the... What are you as a born-again believer? When you're saying goodbye as a daddy to maybe one of your kids that's going away to school, or, or when maybe one of you guys is going away on a business trip, what do you say? May... Everyone, let me hear it. May. 
Now just think of it. May the forest be with you or may God be with you. See the tremendous, you know, just a great chasm. May the forest be with you. May God be with you. I've often exposed to you that when you're watching Star Wars that the ultimate thing in Star Wars is not the good empire or the bad empire. The ultimate thing in Star Wars is the energy that Luke Skywalker can use to levitate a spaceship out of the midst of a bach. You see, the force is used by the evil emperor, and it's also used by Luke Skywalker. The ultimate thing in Lucas's trilogy is power and energy, which is basically an Eastern idea, but it's also the spirit of Antichrist. What it's saying is that ultimately the thing that is eternal in this present reality, the thing that lasts forever, the thing that's always been here and always will be here is power and energy. We learned a lot about atheistic evolution and how Antichrist is breathing deeply from the spirit of atheistic evolution. What makes evolution so antithetical to what the scripture teaches? The book of Hebrews tells us that by faith we understand that the things which we can see were made out of what? The things we can't see. The things that you can presently see, the material world, the mountains, the ocean, the the beautiful continents, and all that we enjoy as we travel around this world and the stars that we look up, Hebrews is telling us that what came first was the invisible word of God, the character of God, the presence of God. It is the invisible, almighty, transcendent Lord who is forever. And what we presently can see was made out of what we can't see. So what's really important, what lasts forever, is not what we can see, but what we can't see. And what we can't see is the character of God and the joy of God and the love of God and the faithfulness of God. And what we talked about is this great contrast between living for the things we can see, for the material world, and you all know from physics that E equals MC squared, so energy and, and, and material are just juxtaposition. They're just equal to one another. They're related to one another. And here you have that energy, according to the Antichrist, is all that there really is. Now I want you to stop and think of, of, the, of making power your God. You know, I remember being on Mount Carmel just a couple months ago. And as I was standing on Mount Carmel, that's where Elijah called the fire down from heaven and challenged the ancient gods of his day. But as we were telling that story, it's always stirring to be right there on that mountain talking about calling fire down from heaven. But it was so ironic because I looked down right on the plains of Jezreel, which are the plains of Armageddon, and F-16s, there's an Israeli Air Force base, right at the base of Mount Carmel. It's right in the heart of the Jezreel plain. And F-16s were taking off the runway. They would make a sharp bank to the right. You could hear them go up to Lebanon. You could even hear the bombs going off as they attacked guerrilla positions up there that were shelling northern Israel. Then you'd see them loop around, come back and land. It was just one continuous streams of F-16s. And I couldn't help but think, you know, as an American, boy, those are our planes. I even know some of the guys that, that build those things. And some of those that have been involved in, in making those things the leading attack aircraft, you know, kind of the sports car of the, of the world of fighter planes. And I was thinking, man, I'm an American, and those are our planes, and, and look what they're doing. That's power. It's might. Now, there's nothing wrong with nations defending themselves. In fact, Romans 13 teaches us that a government doesn't hold the sword in vain. For example, many of you are policemen, and we want you to know how we pray for you and how we, we ask for your safety and how much we appreciate what you're doing. 
Because the scripture says that you, as a representative of the government, are really a servant of God to bear the sword for our protection. So that if somebody breaks into my house and I'm able, you know, somehow to be able to, to dial 911 and get the word out to you that you can come into my house and you can protect me and hopefully you can keep them from tearing my family apart and stealing my stuff because you are there as a protective servant of the Lord. On an international level, sometimes we need international policemen. Sometimes there's a rogue criminal government. World War II is kind of the prime example of that, where Hitler became like an international criminal. And so nations need to gather together and use their armed forces to restrain that evil. And so we get into that whole discussion of, of the present world we live in and, and the just use of force versus the unjust use of force. I believe that the scripture teaches just as we need the government to keep local order, to keep national order, we also need armies that are standing for what's right to be able to have international justice and international order. Obviously, that's a very simplistic way to look at it, but I think scripture does lay out that there's a place for a nation to defend itself, for a nation to have armies. So the scripture's not saying that power in itself is intrinsically evil. In fact, one day, the King of kings and the Lord of glory, Jesus himself, will come from heaven and he will definitely use force against the evil of Antichrist. But what we're talking about when we talk about the spirit of Antichrist, we're talking about how power, how power begins to be abused and how it becomes something that becomes the God that's controlling everything. In fact, there's an incredible illustration already in the past where the spirit of Antichrist was powerfully operative in a situation where you might not have expected it to be operative. You see, as you go to churches, you gather together in religious buildings, you don't think of power, you don't think of someone living just for their own authority to be ruling and reigning. We think in terms of religion being a place where we're going to find comfort, we're going to have peace, we're going to find security, we're going to have find people that really live with security and with, with great integrity. But you know, the truth of the matter is, often among religion, we can have the spirit of Antichrist. Turn your Bibles to John chapter 18. Because if we think about the spirit of Antichrist that's already gone at work in the world, in John chapter 18, as Jesus moves towards his trial, we have one of the most flagrant divinations of power. We have one of the most powerful times in all the scripture where the spirit of the evil one, where the worship of power becomes tantamount. It begins in John chapter 18, verse 28. Let's look at that. It says, Then the Jews led Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. By now it was early in the morning to avoid ceremonial uncleanness. The Jews, and here we should read the Jewish leaders, they did not enter the palace. They wanted to be able to eat the Passover. So Pilate came out to them and asked, What charges are you bringing against this man? If he were not a criminal, they replied, We would not have handed him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take him yourself and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone, the Jews objected. The Jewish leaders objected. This happened so that the word Jesus had spoken, indicating the kind of death he was going to die, would be fulfilled. Just take yourself back to the trial. What John is describing for us is that for an entire night, Caiaphas and all of his religious henchmen had spent the night trying to find witnesses that would be able to attack Jesus and that their testimony would line up enough, it would be consistent enough that they would be able to make it stand before a Roman court. Now just think of the injustice of that. 
Caiaphas and his henchmen had been working all night long. Why were they trying to accuse Jesus? The book of John tells us clearly. They know, they knew that Jesus' miracles were true. They knew that Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. You say, well then, Dave, why in the world didn't they bow down to Jesus as the Messiah? Why didn't they receive him? Well, we know that ultimately the big picture was that God had a sovereign plan that involved him going to the cross. But as far as human responsibility was concerned, the reason that the Jewish leaders, the Jewish religious leaders, and it could have been any one of us as religious leaders, the reason they didn't bow to Jesus is because they wanted to maintain their power. They wanted to maintain their authority. They wanted to stay in control. Caiaphas was in control of the religious scene in Jerusalem. Caiaphas, as the high priest, had control of the population of Israel. He was in a delicate balance with the Roman Empire, and he liked the money that was flowing in. He liked the prestige that was flowing in. He liked the power. He liked the authority. And so he drank deeply from that. And what you've had described here is a religious hierarchy that's willing to sacrifice an innocent man. You say, Dave, how do you know they're religious? Look what it says. It says, as they bring Jesus to Pilate. Did you notice right here that John said that they wouldn't even go in to Pilate's house? Because as a Jewish person getting ready to celebrate the Passover, if they rubbed shoulders with a Gentile, if they went into a Gentile's home, it would be very easy for them to be polluted ceremonially, externally. And if they were polluted externally, they would not be able to take part in the religious celebration. And what I want you to do is I want you to get insight. Is here you have a religious person that's carrying out, is very scrupulous in obeying all these external things. In other words, they want to be sure that they can keep the Jewish Passover. They want to be sure they can keep this very holy day. And yet they've got an innocent man and they are plotting about how they can murder him, how they can take his life. I want you to see in the midst of this that John makes it clear that ultimately the Lord is in control. Look at verse 32. This happened so that the words that Jesus had had spoken indicating the kind of death he was going to die would be fulfilled. So ultimately, even as we deal with this worship of power and the spirit of Antichrist, we also have the spirit of God really in control, really running the script. And I want you to see this great crisis, this great contrast. Jewish religious leaders, and they could have been any kind of religious leader that are living for power, living for their position, trying to maintain their present status quo, so much so that they're willing to murder an innocent man, they're willing to lie about him. I want you to see how evil, evil can get. And I want you to realize that as you go out into the world, there will be religious leaders that all they do is live for their power. All they do is live for their pride. All they live for that passion of maintaining their position. And power has a hold of them. That's the Jewish religious leaders. And yet God is ultimately the one that's in control that's writing out his story. So we have the religious leaders who are drinking deeply and breathing deeply from the spirit of Antichrist. We also have the political leaders living and dreaming and breathing this same kind of divinity or the worship of power. Look what Pilate says in verse 33 as we talk about the political abuse of power. Look what Pilate does in verse 32. Pilate then went back inside the palace and he summoned Jesus and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? It's the power question. Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? If Jesus responded just with a categorical yes... Then Pilate could have said, well, you're an insurrectionist, you're rebelling against Caesar, 
And therefore, he could go ahead and execute him and maintain his position with the Israelite leaders and also his position in the Roman Empire. So he asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? Look how Jesus responds. Is that your own idea? Or did others talk to you about me? In essence, Jesus shows that he's not someone that just gets caught in external talk. In essence, what he's saying to Pilate says, Pilate, do you really want to talk about the truth? Do you really want to have a conversation where we get down to heart, to heart level? Where I talk about what's really true in my own life and you talk about what's really true in your life? Do you want to really have a discussion about my kingdom or not? And so look how Pilate responds. Am I a Jew? Pilate replied. It was your people and your chief priests who handed you over to me. What is, what is it that you have done? Look how Jesus responds. My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. But now my kingdom is from another place. I want you to know that Pilate represented the iron fist of the Roman legions. The Roman nation at this time had conquered every inch of the then known world. Their armies ruled from the Hindus Valley all the way over to the tip of Gibraltar. No one could stand against the armies and the, the navy of Rome. Cleopatra wasn't able to do it. Mark Antony couldn't do it. Uh, none of the Syrian leaders, Antiochus Epiphanes that we studied about in the book of Daniel couldn't do it. Nobody could conquer these Roman people. So Pilate, from a human standpoint, is entrenched in the power position. He's got all the power that a modern leader could, could, could crave. But Jesus says to him, he says, Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom had been of this world, then I could call my servants and they would fight for me. And I want you to stop and think. Because as you go out into your school, starting out in just a few days, as a lot of you go back into your business, as a believer, it's really easy to identify with Jesus in this suffering position, people abusing you, false religionists just doing their thing, and it's really easy to be very intimidated and feel like, man, there's no way that we can have victory here. And you lose your confidence, you lose your boldness. I want you to stop and think what Jesus reminded Pilate of. He said, if my kingdom were of this world, which implied that his kingdom is where? His kingdom is beyond this world. You see, right now there's a tremendous drive in our scientific community to connect with interterrestrial life, extraterrestrial life. We are killing ourselves. Big bucks are being spent to try to hear voices from out there, to be able to find little green men or little orange men or little crimson men, whatever color of your own, A&M, or maybe the little orange men from UT. Who knows? We're all looking to find some creatures out there. Why do we want to do that? We have the idea that maybe if we can connect with somebody out there, we can get the ultimate answers to our destiny. We can find out how this whole process of materialism and energy took place. You see, that's where materialistic atheism is leading. You see, they're telling you, you need to put your confidence in our technological ability to be able to connect with the, whatever beings might be out there. The idea is that if, with all these solar systems and all these, these stars out there and star systems, there's gotta be some life that's kind of like ours. You ever stop and think about putting your faith in that? How do you know that they're going to be friendly when we connect with them? How are you going to know that they're going to be not deadly and bring us infections that could destroy us? Just stop and think for a minute about putting your hope in that. Carl Sagan is now dead. He died of a disease and he's gone. I don't know where he is. I hope with all my heart, maybe in the last few days of his life, that he really responded to the Savior. 
really responded to the message of salvation through the cross and the resurrection that he spent a lifetime arguing against. But Carl Sagan, when he was here on earth, you know, went around the world and made many videos trying to say that the answer is going to be in astronomy and finding out there that we're going to connect with some kind of intelligent life. Well, I want you to know, based upon the word of God, based upon what Jesus is saying, Jesus is saying that there is extraterrestrial life. In other words, terrace is this present world. Extra means beyond this present world or above it. And I want you to know with all my heart, I can say categorically, there is extraterrestrial life. Only it doesn't look like E.T. In fact, every single time one of these beings come from beyond this planet and they appear to somebody on this planet, not unidentified flying objects, but like Gabriel or Michael when they appear to Daniel. You know what happened to these human beings when they saw these supernatural beings? They fell flat on their face. Their faces went completely white. As Daniel saw an angelic being, the angel had to reach down and several times strengthen him because of the incredible might that's there. The scripture teaches that there are all kinds of supernatural beings out there. There are angelic beings that worship the Father, worship the Son, worship the Holy Spirit, and there are demonic beings that have supernatural power that follow their henchmen, the adversary, Satan. So you as a believer already have the answer to that question, and you don't need a radio telescope to get the answer. And I want you to know that what Jesus is telling Pilate, he says, Pilate, you think you're in control here, but I want you to know that I am part of an invisible kingdom that goes beyond this entire present dimension. And if I wanted to, I could call for my servants to fight. The same thing took place in the Garden of Gethsemane. Remember when Peter ripped out his sword when they were taking Jesus captive and he swung at the guy's head and he missed. He wasn't a very good swordsman. He was rusty, I guess. And he hit the guy's ear and lopped it off. And Jesus took the ear and, and did instant plastic surgery, the kind of surgery I'd like if I ever had it done, put his ear back on. And then he said to Peter, don't you realize that I could call 10,000 legions of angels and they would instantly respond to me? Don't ever think when you're suffering for Jesus, the power of this world is abusing you, that it's because you're in such an intimidating, weak position. Jesus is reminding us that when we are the sons and daughters of God, that we are connected ultimately with the real power in the universe, with the real force in the universe. Only power and energy is just one of the attributes of our God. He's not ultimately just power. You can't say power is God. You always say God is all-powerful. You don't say all-powerful is God. Because power is not God. Power is just one of the attributes of God, and we ought to praise him for that because he's also love, he's also forgiveness, he's also all the incredible peace and joy. And that's why it's so important not to get drinking the spirit of power and think that that's the only way to get ahead. So Jesus reminds Pilate that in reality, he's got a kingdom. If he wanted to, he could have zapped Pilate, and that would have been the end. But, in the, but he didn't. Look what it says in verse 36. My kingdom is not in this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. But now my kingdom is from another place. I want all of us to remember God's kingdom, Christ's kingdom, is from another place. Right now, the church is in a very serious danger. It could be our church. It could be evangelicalism. In the United States of America, there's a great battle taking place. It's very easy to want to use political power to bring in the kingdom of God. 
It's an intoxicating thing. In fact, when I spoke at Word of Life just a couple days ago, a dear pastor came up and he had the audacity in his church of teaching that Jesus' kingdom was not of this world. That we could not think that we could bring in the kingdom of Christ on planet Earth in the United States of America through our own political power, through our own political organization, through our own political strength. And he almost got thrown out of his church. Because the, the, the power of that church had become rooted into bringing the kingdom of God in the United States of America. I want you to know, as a born-again believer, that you're to be a good citizen. I want you to be involved in any political committee the Lord leads you to be involved in. I want you to be on school committees. I want you to be on, on, on all the p- political parties committees. I want you to be involved in elections. It's very important for you to vote. But I want you to never do it because you think that through that political involvement, we can bring in the kingdom of God. I want you to do it because you're a good citizen. I want you to do it because you want there to be fairness. You want there to be no slander. I want you to, in those positions, to say, even if we lose, we're still going to do what's right. Otherwise, we're not representing Christ. And you see, we must always be dependent upon the invisible hand of Jesus, who one day will bring in his kingdom, and it will be a stone cut out without hands. The evangelical church right now is in very grave danger of making a mistake that's been made historically again and again and again. It's when the church of Jesus Christ decides we can bring the kingdom of God on planet earth by seizing political control. Instead, we need to realize that we do it the way Christ did it. The way we have influence over others is we follow the pathway of the crucifixion and the resurrection of Christ. Jesus didn't act in the power of position. Instead, he submitted to what was happening in this situation. And he stood for truth and he stood for what was right. Look at his commitment to truth in the next few verses. You are a king, then, said Pilate in verse 37. You are right in saying that I am a king. In fact, for this reason I was born and for this reason I came into the world to testify the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What an incredible statement. Every child... Every teenager, every college student, every fellow business person, every wife, every husband, every grandmother, every grandfather, every older person, every person on planet Earth that really wants to know the truth will eventually end up at the feet of Jesus. That's what Jesus is saying. And John makes his claim all the way through. Paul makes the same claim in 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians. If you want to know the truth, if you really want to open your heart to the truth, then slowly but surely, God, the ultimate author of truth, is going to reveal himself to you. So if you're sitting here saying, well, I don't buy this Jesus stuff. And the reason I don't buy it is because there's some intellectual things that I don't have the answer to. And I have this question about evolution. And I have this question about biblical authority and biblical, biblical inerrancy. And I'm going back and forth on that. If you honestly want to know the truth, then eventually you're going to work through those problems and you're going to find out the truth. But I want to warn you. Most of us, deep in our souls, are not listening to the voice of the Holy Spirit pulling us to the truth. We use our questions to give us an excuse not to respond to God. That's what's happening here. That's what Caiaphas did. Caiaphas and Pilate is doing it. Pilate's asking questions to dodge his confrontation with truth. He doesn't want to deal with Jesus personally. He doesn't want to have to think about who Jesus really might be. And that's why he flippantly says, you know, what is truth? What is truth? And the idea is, you know, no one could ever know. Cynically, no one could ever know. And incredibly, Jesus 
was the way, the truth, and the life. The embodiment of truth was standing right before Pilate, and he missed it. You know why he missed it? Because he was worshiping the force. He worshiped his position. He worshiped his power. You know what's amazing about that? Just a few years after he crucified Jesus, his henchman, the guy that was his uh, mentor in Rome, was cast from power. In fact, he had been cast from power right at this time when Jesus was crucified in 33 AD, approximately. A man named Sejanus. Tiberius, who had, who had been kind of an absentee Caesar and allowed this man named Sejanus to kind of rule in, in Rome. And Pilate was one of Sejanus' appointments. Sejanus was cast from power because Tiberius came back and said he was going to take on the throne of the Roman Empire the way that he should. In just a few short years, Pilate was gone. And he was gone from power. So the very thing that he sought to maintain as he confronted Jesus, he wasn't able to maintain. And so here in, in John chapter 18, we see the spirit of Antichrist moving through religious leaders. We see the spirit of Antichrist moving through political leaders. And above it all, we see in contrast this humble man of truth. You know, as I talk to you about these things, as we talk about the abuse of power and the spirit of Antichrist, it's really easy for us to all piously sit there and say, well, man, that's the last thing in the world I would ever be seduced by. That's the last thing in the world that I would ever live by. I want to ask you... How do you work with other people? What happens when you're not in control? What happens when you're not in control? Some of you moms, as your kids grow older and your kids move away from home and they come back home, you know one of the things that happens? You want to control them. In our own family, you know, Mary and I have to pray about this. Jonathan's 24. He's not a little boy. So when he comes back home, you know what mom wants to do? And you know what dad wants to do? They want to control him again. And so you start using power structures to bring that about. Some of you dads are in tremendous conflicts with your 13-year-old son or daughter. Because suddenly, as they go up through adolescence, suddenly you're not in control. It's not like when they were in the, in the playpen anymore. And so you can't know all their boundaries. You can't know all that they're doing. And I'm not saying that you should let go of your legitimate parental authority. But some of you dads, because you're not making that transition and you're trying to exert power to win the power argument, instead of becoming a wise guide that gives good advice, tremendous wars are going on. The teenager that wants to exert his power that's disrespectful and rebellious is doing the same thing. You see how those things begin to attack us? That power thing, that spirit of Antichrist. I know a mom right now whose two kids will, don't want to have a thing to do with her. They want to get as far away as they can from her because she's got to exercise power over their lives. She's always trying to give them advice, always trying to, to tell them they're not doing a very good job, always trying to whip them in the line according to her will. And it doesn't work. You can't get a hold of people's hearts that way you got to let Jesus be the power in their life. you got to let Jesus be the one that guides them. you got to trust him enough. And we can say, man, I, I really want to do that, but it's hard. We need to pray for each other about this power thing. The spirit of Antichrist can be involved in us. Let me make it really practical and personal. A few months ago, we were debating about what should we do with Truth Encounter and debating about you know, whether we should go with back to the Bible. And the Lord was opening up that opportunity. But Mary comes to me and she says, you know, man, I'm stressed out. You know, trying to run, you know, that, you know, get a whole mailing list going and, and, and trying to keep all this going and trying to keep all these balls up. And I, I can't do some of the things in the church that I want to do. 
I can't, I can't, you know, Jonathan, and, I mean, Josh and Janae, Josh is a sophomore. He's only going to be here three more years. And Janae's only going to be here for four more years. And I just don't have any energy left for them. What do I as a husband do? Man, I'm getting into my late 40s. If I'm ever going to make it, if I'm ever going to have that well-known position around the country, if I'm ever going to get, you know, that influence that a man really wants to have, it's got to be now. And so I can say to my dear wife, honey, you got to hang in there. you got to keep this thing going. You need to keep pouring out your strength. And I can literally use my pride and my power to break her. Husbands, you can get involved in that. What Jesus is saying is that we don't let that spirit of Antichrist control us. That we say, man, I don't have to be important. I don't have to be the one that's in control. Husbands, I've tried to share with you from my own heart what's happening in your heart as a man. Are you living for power? You living for that influence? I go up to Word of Life and on a Wednesday night that I just shared with you early in this service about going over to the campfire. For years and years and years of my life, I would get into my dad's speedboat. And for many years now, I would be the one that would turn on the engine. and I would be the one that would drive over there because I was the son of the power person at Word of Life. Now when I arrive at the place, the house that my dad lived in all those years belongs to somebody else. As I go around, I can't even find the dock where the boat's supposed to be. Another man comes out, and he jumps into the steering position, and he's the one that turns on the ignition, and I have to just sit beside him in the front. You know what that does to you? You know, here's something that you had for years and years, a position, influence, power. I used to be the one that could arrive at Word of Life Island driving this fancy speedboat, but now I'm just a passenger. What happens in your heart when you're in that situation? You get jealous. You want to hurt. One of the attitudes that you have is, I just want to get out of here. I don't think I'll ever go back here and speak again. I can make all kinds of holy reasons why I'm going to do that. But it has to do with my power. It has to do with having influence. Anybody ever wrestle with feelings like that? The Savior is calling us today to recognize the spirit of Antichrist that's inside of all of us. It's easy to think of this ultimate 666 that's destructive and hurtful. But we need to realize that 666 can be right inside of us. We need to acknowledge that and confess it before the Lord so that we humble ourselves and we don't allow jealousy, we don't allow pride, we don't allow those power positions to push us away from the family of God. I've often told you this story when I first got my doctorate degree. Men alive, I worked nine years to get that thing. And the day after I got it, we went to the kind of, it was just a few months after, about a month after I got it, we went to this Texas State Fair. And we were looking for an earth stove and, in order to heat our house. And man, it was, we were signing the final deal and purchasing that thing. And I remember I went out of my way to make sure that he knew that I was Dr. Wurtzel. When we were all done making the purchase and we were walking away, Mary looked at me and said, you idiot. You know, Mary had the way of being so sedate and very tactful. She says, that crazy guy thinks you're a surgeon. Don't you know that he, he charges twice as much for the earth stove? As pastors, we can be so into titles. I want you to know that there's no doctors, no power doctors in this group. A dear pastor from up in Ohio called up our secretary and she called up here at the church and Liz gave him my number back home. And when I answered the phone, I just said, hello, this is Dave Wurtson. He just told me, he just told me a couple days ago, he says, Dave, you don't know what that meant to me. Just Dave. 
He says, because I go to pastor's conference after pastor conference and man, it's doctor this and doctor that and doctor this and doctor that. And half of them don't even have earned doctorates. I'm going to share something with you. Almost a sure way to tell whether someone has an honorary doctor degree is if they make you call them doctor. Because almost every one of the legitimate PhDs and THDs that I know that really earned it, they'll always just say, because it's the real thing. It's kind of like Troy Aikman walking in the back door. Troy's not going to come in and say, wow, I'm the quarterback of the Dallas Cowboys, and I want all of you to acknowledge me and recognize me. And, and as we sit down to lunch, that Troy had to tell us the whole lunch what a great quarterback he is. Troy would never do that. He's quiet. All Troy would have to do is walk in the back door, and every one of you could just look at him, and you would know he's got an arm, a right arm that's like a rifle. And he's one of the most accurate passers that the NFL has ever had. Troy really does have the real thing. And when you have the real thing, you don't have to be this little insecure person that has to force their way. And so as I move into, you know, later midlife, the Lord is teaching me, hey, you don't have to have power. You don't have to have influence. You don't have to fight the people that are around you. Instead, we're just, we can be a family of servants. We can resist the spirit of Antichrist. I want to ask you today, wives... Do you feel hopeless in your marriage because you don't have control over your husband? Are you trying to whoop him in shape using power? It's not going to work. When you use power to whip anybody in shape, they respond with power back. It's one of the craziest things that you can ever learn, but it's the truth. In order to really have influence over people, in order to really become a servant to people, you have to let go of your power. You have to let go of your pride. You've got to confess that spirit of Antichrist and let the Lord be in control. It's so easy to talk about, so hard to do. I want some of you wives that are living in a marriage that your husband's a jerk and he doesn't live close to the Lord and he's not walking with him. And some of you feel like, man, if I could only get rid of this guy, I could really find what God really wants, and I could really have that beautiful Christian home. I got news for you. Right in the situation where you are today is where the Lord wants you to be. The Lord Jesus dealt with Caiaphas and Pilots and disciples that wouldn't listen to him. And he models for us how he doesn't grab power, but by his character, by his example, he wins people and influences people. So if you're in that kind of a home as a wife, I want you to know that you are in the ideal position that God has for you, for you to learn to follow your Savior and not grab the power, but allow him to produce a Christ-like character. We could apply the same thing to your husbands that might be working with some kids. Some of you have kids that have wandered away. Are you trying to use power to bring them back home? It's not going to work. You've got to humbly commit unto the Lord. You've got to humbly present the truth to you, to them, as the Lord gives you opportunity. Mostly, you have to pray. And so we learn, we talk about the spirit of power, the spirit of, of Antichrist. And it's not just something that's out there. It's something that's right inside. And so I ask you to open your heart to the Savior that stood before Pilate, to the Savior that stood for, before Caiaphas. I want you to realize that as you grow older that you're never going to find real security. You're never going to find real togetherness in your life until you let go of the pride, let go of the power, let go of the control, and let the true king of kings rule and reign. There's a very powerful story in the Brothers Karamazov. Dostoevsky was a Russian novelist in the last century. He was a man long before psychology that understood more psychology than any other psychiatrist I've ever read. But Dostoevsky tells an incredibly powerful story in the Brothers Karamazov called The Grand Inquisitor. 
The scene is set in the Spanish Inquisition. It's set in Seville, Spain. The day before, or even during the day, a hundred heretics had been burned at the stake, and the courtly ladies and the courtly officials and the princes and princesses and all the church hierarchy was there. The man that oversaw the whole thing to the glory of God, to the glory of the church, was this old, this great cardinal with his beautiful robe and his, his big headgear. As they closed this day of butchering people to the glory of God, supposedly, on the outskirts of the crowd, there comes a peasant man, just a humble peasant man dressed in rags. As he walks to the crowd, he sees someone that's lame, and he just touches the lame leg, and they can walk. He walks a little bit farther through the crowd and he sees someone blind. He just takes his hand and he heals the blind eyes. He gets to the door of this gigantic, beautiful, awesome cathedral. And a funeral has begun. A dear mother is bringing her son into the door of the cathedral to bury him. And this humble peasant just touches the dead son and he rises again from the dead. By that time, obviously, a crowd had gathered. And people are beginning to murmur and talk. And you can hear the whispers. He's returned. He's returned. The grand cardinal comes forth in a beautiful regalia and he, he calls for the servants, for the soldiers of the church to arrest this man. And he throws him in a dungeon. Late that night, all alone, the grand inquisitor, the great, the grand cardinal came down to the prison cell and he begins to talk to the humble peasant in the cell. The conversation goes kind of like this. Why have you come back? It's taken us 1,500 years to correct the mess that you made. Don't you understand when the great tempter talked to you and he told you, first of all, to give them bread? Don't you understand that if you give people bread, don't you understand if you give people bread that you can, that you can totally control them? If you just keep people's stomachs filled, then you can exercise all the authority you want. Why didn't you turn the stone to bread? You could have saved us all this trouble. Why didn't you do it? You you wanted them to be free. You wanted them to choose to freely love you. Why didn't you realize that they don't want that freedom? They don't want someone that gives them choice. They don't want someone that wants them to be adult. They want someone to feed their stomachs. And so we have done that. We've given them bread. Second of all, why didn't you just jump off the pinnacle of the temple? Don't you know that people want a miracle? Don't you know that if you would have jumped off the pinnacle of the temple right into the midst of those thronging crowds at the temple of Jerusalem, don't you know they would have worshipped you, they would have adored you, they would have followed you like submissive sheep? Why didn't you just jump off? Why didn't you do your miracles always in almost a cloak of, of protection? Why didn't you just do it before Pilate? Why didn't you just do it before your enemies? Don't you realize that people want to be controlled by mystery and the miracle? And finally, you had your opportunity. Why didn't you seize the kingdom of the world? Why didn't you just grab the multitudes? Why didn't you just get down and worship power? Says, don't you know that it's taken us 1,500 years to correct those mistakes? We know that man wants to be controlled by their stomach. Give them bread. They'll do anything you want. We know that people are controlled by mystery and miracle. And, and we can exercise authority over them. And we have seized the kingdom. And don't you know that tomorrow morning, when the crowds gathered, those crowds that were so enamored by you and so responding to your love, don't you know that I have authority, that I have power? Don't you know that tomorrow I will call for my servants and they will seize you and we will burn you at the stake? The humble peasant never answered, never said a word. The grand inquisitor said, why don't you talk to me? Why don't you, why don't you respond to me? 
The Grand Inquisitor's story closes with this humble peasant walks right through the cell, grabbed a hold of the cardinal and kisses him on the lips, and he walks away forever. Dostoevsky realized what an organized Christendom that worships power and lives just for controlling people, what it will do and the agony that it will bring. Dostoevsky wrote before Lenin in the political arena like a, a modern-day Roman ruler grabbed a hold of the political power of his nation and just his hand became bathed with blood because of the violence that was done. The choice that we have in, in, in America today, the choice you have in your life, will you allow Jesus, the humble Galilean Savior, to kiss you on the lips, to give you his love, to open his gracious commitment to you, And join him in bringing about his kingdom on earth, not through power, but through the real influence of his amazing grace. Or will you live the rest of your life just trying to be in control, trying to live for power, trying to be the one that does his thing, your own thing, instead of the Lord Jesus' thing? Let's pray. I would ask you, Lord, that you would help me in the coming months, coming days, to resist the spirit of Antichrist inside of me. To not have to have titles, to not have to have prestige, to not have to have power. To never abuse people by having to be important. And I pray that my brethren and sisters, as I've tried to share with my, from my own heart, I pray that you would powerfully touch the life of my brothers and sisters. And I would pray that they would realize that we live in an age of grace where your kingdom is not of this world, but it is a spiritual kingdom that that has far more power in the long run. And so, Lord, I would pray that we wouldn't need the externals. I pray that we wouldn't have to have the power positions. Lord, I just would pray that we'll realize that it's easy to think about this ultimate Antichrist who will worship power. But, Lord, we can have that spirit of Antichrist today controlling, manipulating us, And yet, Lord, we thank you for the example of your son that's come to us today, humble, riding upon this little colt, willingly offering himself and also respecting our own individual identity, giving us the chance to choose as well. I pray, Lord, that we'll keep growing as a church family, as individuals and as individual families, in drinking deeply from the spirit of humility, the spirit of self-sacrifice, instead of the spirit of prideful power. Lord, We're never going to say, may the force be with you. We're always going to be greeting one another and saying goodbye to one another. May the Lord be with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. For more information on materials available through Truth Encounter, please write to us at Truth Encounter, Box 580, Midlothian, Texas, 76065, Or you can contact us on the web at www.truthencounter.com. Our telephone number is 1-888-668-7884.